0: at the Christmas, Christmas according to Matthew. And, you know, when we think about the Christmas story, we most naturally take the two Gospels that give us information about Jesus' birth, that is Luke's Gospel and Matthew's Gospel, and we blend them together into one story. And thus, our nativity sets have Mary, Joseph, the baby Jesus, an angel, shepherds, magi, usually three, a bunch of stable animals, and possibly a star. They're all there in one scene. And yet, if we only had Luke's account, there would be no Magi and no star. And if we only had Matthew's account, there would be no angels, no shepherds, stable or manger. In fact, it's quite doubtful that the Magi and the shepherds came to see the baby Jesus at the same time. Now, let me say this. I'm not against blending the two accounts as we celebrate the birth of Jesus. But I do think that by doing so, we lose some of the impact that each of the gospel writers was trying to make. That is the point that they were trying to get across by the way they wrote their nativity accounts and the information that they passed on. And usually, usually Matthew gets the short end of the stick. For except for the Magi and the star, Luke's account seems to overshadow Matthew's in our minds. And that's why we have the Magi showing up in a stable with the shepherds. And thus we often miss out on what it was that Matthew was trying to get across to his first readers and to us. And so over the next few weeks, these four Sundays in December, we're going to look at Christmas according to. To Matthew, almost pretending that we had never received Luke's account, as was the case for Matthew's first readers. Just think about it. Those who first got Matthew's gospel, they didn't have Luke's gospel. They only knew the Christmas story based on what Matthew gave. And so our goal will be to understand the significance of the coming of Jesus into our world as a baby, the incarnation according to Matthew's story or from Matthew's perspective. You see, the way that Matthew tells the Christmas story fits perfectly into his overall purpose or purposes in writing his gospel. We know that Matthew wrote his gospel somewhere in the mid to late first century. That would have been even after many of the Apostle Paul's writings would have been written, probably probably after 70 A.D. And he most likely wrote from Antioch where there was a strong community of Jewish followers of Jesus. And so Matthew was writing to a predominantly Jewish audience who is familiar with the Old Testament and who needed to be reassured that Jesus was, in fact, their Messiah, especially after having been thrown out of their synagogues and being persecuted by their fellow Jews. And so that explains why there are so many Old Testament quotes in Matthew's gospel and especially in his accounting of Jesus' birth. In fact, he often uses the Old Testament scriptures to show how Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. For he wanted to assure those early Jewish believers that Jesus was the one that all of Israel had been waiting for. And in fact, the very first verse of the gospel and of his Christmas narrative that we just read. Again, he says this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah the son of David, the son of Abraham. Let me just note that when we read Christ, that's simply the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, Messiah. And immediately notice Matthew calls Jesus the Messiah and ties him to two of the most important figures in Jewish history, Abraham and David. After all, Abraham was told that he would be the father of a great nation who would bring blessing to all nations and David was promised that one day a ruler would come up out of his lineage who would set up a kingdom that would have no end. You see, Matthew's gospel and his Christmas story, they point to Jesus, to Jesus as the one who came to fulfill the promises made to both Abraham and David, that Jesus came to be and is the Messiah of the Jewish people and the Savior of all people. Can you say Amen. And so that brings us to the first part of Matthew's Christmas story, the genealogy of Jesus. How many of you would like to have to preach from the genealogy to this morning? Well, I've entitled this morning's message, A Twisted Family Tree. And I'm going to read for us the genealogy. So if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, I'm praying that I get through all the names, okay? the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of She Shutiel, and Shutiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud and Abiud the father of Elakim, and Elakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Messiah, or Christ. So all Wow, I didn't expect applause. It threw me off. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Amen. I'm sure at least a handful of us here have taken the time to trace out our family tree. And for many of us, such an endeavor can become quite complicated. You know, the lack of records and the fact that maybe many of us have either come from other countries or are the grandchildren or great-grandchildren of immigrants to this country. And all of that can make it nearly impossible to go back more than maybe two, one, two, three generations And yet, if we could, I'm sure that in each of our family trees, we would find not only men and women of great character, but some whose stories are maybe a little bit tainted. Each of us probably have, to some degree, a twisted family tree. Now, years ago, a number of years ago, I began trying to put together our family tree, first from my mother's side, then from my father's side as relatives like my grandmother and my aunt and so forth were moving and passing away and cleaning out apartments and so forth and pulling out the boxes with the pictures and the memorabilia and then going on Ancestry.com and finding the mani- the manifest for the ships that some of them came on and census data and all of this. In the midst of it all, uh, many of you know on um, my m- maternal grand Mother, well, my on my mother's side, I'm Jewish, and and my um, my mother's family originally came from that part of the world that is now the Ukraine. And um, well, her dad from Latvia, but it found a lot of stuff that my great grandmother had, and she and her, she had come as a little girl with her dad, and I think um, the brother was already here, and they came after the house, their house they had in the Ukraine um, burned down, and the mother mother, Her mother was killed in, a, in the fire. And so they came here to the US to start a new life. But in the stuff that they brought, I found a train pass of my great grandmother's grandfather with his picture that he could travel from Lvov, what now is Lvov, Ukraine, to Vienna, Austria. I don't know how that all worked back then. But all I know is that I could show my children a picture of their great, 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 great grandfather from like 1895. And there he is, an Orthodox Jew from Ukraine with like, you know, the yarmulkes were different then. They were like a little bit bigger and the long beard and so forth. And it's amazing. I don't know anything about his life personally. And so he may have been a good man. He may not have been a good man. I don't really know, you know? I'll believe he was a good man, right? (laughs) I do know this, that um, my mom's mom that whom I, excuse me, my mom's dad, um, Grandpa Gerson, right, whom I met only a few times in my life, was probably not the kind of guy that we as a family want to brag on. I don't want to get the rest of the family upset if they're watching online. But, but he was an entertainer, right? He was the first of, of the children in his family to be born here in the U.S. There were seven of them, and he was number five, the first to be born here in the U.S. And um, he became an entertainer. He played harmonicas. He would come to the house. He had a little one like this all the way to the biggest one, like about like four feet long. And he would go to the Catskill Hotels, you know, Jewish hotels in Florida. He was, he was, like, on off-Broadway stuff. He was the opening act for a lot of big names of the time. And so, and he was living this, like, really fast-paced life. And he would make money, and he would gamble it. He would drink it. He would spend it on women. And so by the time my mom turned 12, my grandmother just had to, like, send him off and divorce him because he wasn't in the house anyway. And, I, and, and the one thing I remember is how he would come to the house and he would smoke and he would blow cigarette rings, smoke rings that we would have to stick our fingers through. Can you imagine? Like that was fun with grandpa, you know? (laughs) And um, it's kind of sad that when he died years later down in Florida, he he died alone and he died under his stage name, not under his real name. And so, um, but let me just say this, we all have, people in our genealogy, people in our family tree that we might not want to brag on. We all have a twisted family tree. So here's the thing, that most of us when reading our Bibles, we will skip over portions such as the one we just read because after all, how many of us can stand, really stand reading through lists of names? And of what great importance can they be to us today? And yet, This morning I want us to see just how important this genealogical record of Jesus as given to us through Matthew is. And as we'll see this morning, and, and I just want to say on the side that there is so much here that I could have spoken about to us today. I mean, I was overwhelmed by the amount of, of, of information and the amount of things that, that come to light and life here through this genealogy. But as we're going to see this morning, hidden in this list of names are some wonderful lessons regarding the work of God in history, in our world and in our lives, and, and, and see that the whole flow of this genealogy it it truly does move towards the birth of jesus not just the birth of jesus but the birth of jesus as messiah as messiah and i want us to see today as we look at jesus family tree we find in it not only some great men of god but we find as well some who are not the kind of whom one would brag in fact some were not even jewish and most interesting and most noteworthy are the four women who are singled out in this genealogical list, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. Each of these women are mentioned. who are mentioned have a Gentile connection or were involved in some sort of sexual misconduct or both. Tamar's story is found in Genesis 38. And, and the story there, her story interrupts Joseph's story. We know that Tamar was a Canaanite woman who was married to Judah's son, one of the tribes, Judah, right? Big name, right? Married to Judah's son Ur, who himself had been born of a Canaanite woman. And to make a long story short right now, after her husband died, Tamar ends up seducing her father in law, Judah, as a prostitute, and by him gets pregnant with twins, Perez and Zerah. Rahab, we saw her story just a few months ago in Joshua 2. Rahab was a Canaanite woman who lived most of her life as the prostitute of, of, of Jericho until the invasion of the Israelites. Ruth, we have her story, of course, in the book of Ruth. She was a Moabite woman who had been married into an Israelite family. Right, This family had left Israel to flee from a drought. That was against God's command, but they did it. And listen, the Moabite people were the, had the most detestable religious practices of all, including child sacrifice. That's what Ruth comes out of, and Uriah's wife Bathsheba from Second Samuel chapters eleven and so forth. Notice she's not even named the point being made that she had entered the family tree through an adulterous relationship with king david she's not notice she's not called david's wife but uriah's wife she for she'd been formally married to uriah the hittite a gentile and that would have meant that she herself would have been considered by the other jews a gentile and overall it's a terrible description what strikes me about the inclusion of these women in the genealogy of Jesus is that on the surface they are hardly an asset to his lineage. And yet their inclusion teaches us some incredible lessons about the work of God throughout the ages as God in his sovereignty works to bring about the birth of Jesus, the Messiah. The first thing we see is the unfolding of God's plan. And we know that right from the beginning, back in Genesis 3, when, when, when man fell, when man sinned, God made a promise and set a plan into motion when he spoke of one who would be born of a woman who would crush the serpent's head, defeating the enemy of mankind. As we look at the genealogical list as given to us by Matthew, and especially the four women whose names are listed, we can't help but see how, how from the moment of God's promise in Genesis 3, all of history... Throughout the generations, in the good and the bad, all of it became the working out of God's plan so that, as Paul would write, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive the rights of sons. Oh, as we read through this genealogy, we can't help but see the threat that was raised over and over again against this promised Messiah. The attempts to dilute and dissolve the line to which Messiah would come as the men of Abraham's lineage intermarried with Gentile women who threatened to pull them away from God and into idolatry, and often did, who through disobedience to God's word and through sexual misconduct would potentially destroy the family line through which Messiah was to come. But listen, God says through the prophet Isaiah, what I have said, that I will bring about, what I have planned, that I will do. Come on, can you say amen to that? I mean, the psalmist wrote, the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. We see it here in this genealogical list. Through all generations. Listen, God's plan would be accomplished in spite of Tamar's incestual relationship with her father-in-law, in spite of a Canaanite prostitute coming into the family line, in spite of a Jew marrying a Moabite woman, in spite of David's adulterous relationship with Uriah's wife. You see, God had a plan, and in spite of the black sheep of the family, as we say, God's plan would be carried out so that in the fullness of time, at just the right time, God would send his son, the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Savior would be born. Oh, Matthew's point is clear in spite of all that took place among God's people throughout all their history and within our world, throughout the generations. And in spite of these four women coming into the family tree, God's promise to send a Messiah would and did come to pass. The plan of God would not be thwarted. We see in this genealogy a very clear unfolding of God's plan. But secondly, we see the working of God's grace. And as we reflect on these four women, we can't help but take note of the grace of God that is demonstrated through each of their stories, grace that had the power to overcome sin, to transform a life, to even turn the tables on the enemy who sought to destroy the plan of God. Listen, each of their stories is saturated with sin. I mean, Tamar, listen, her story begins with Judah, one of the sons of Jacob, having married a Canaanite woman. And then Judah's son, Ur, does the same, marrying Tamar. And then Tamar's husband, Ur, dies, and her brother-in-law, and I know this sounds really weird to us, okay? But this was the law back then to maintain family lines. But her brother-in-law, Ur's brother, was supposed to get Tamar pregnant on behalf of his brother, but he refused to do so. And so that brother dies. Judah then withholds his youngest son from from her, afraid that he was going to die as well. Tamar then, pretending to be a prostitute, seduces her father-in-law, can you imagine? And he gives in to the prostitute who does get her pregnant. Listen, the story is sin piled upon sin. It's like no matter what angle you look at it from, it's filled with sin. Rahab, her sin is obvious. She was, she, was the, she was a Canaanite prostitute whose prostitution was most likely associated with the worship of pagan gods. That's the way it was. And before coming into contact with Joshua's spies, hers was a life just saturated with sin. Ruth, according to the law, she should have never been part of the family. She was a pagan woman from a pagan background, again, a Moabite. The marriage in and of itself should never have occurred, a sinful marriage, one that transgressed the law of of God for his people. And Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, she was a woman caught in a web of adultery and murder. Her story is couched in lust, power, and greed at its worst. Her relationship with David was steeped in sin from the beginning. Each of these stories is filled with all kinds of sin. Each of these women were women whose relationships, whose lifestyles, whose situations were anything but what we would expect to find in the family line of Messiah. And yet in each and every case, the grace of God was greater than the sin. For as Paul wrote, where sin abounded, grace did so much more abound and in each and every case God worked in such a way to overcome the sin to transform our life to defeat the enemy and to ensure that nothing would hinder his plan of salvation and so in Genesis 38 26 Judah declares concerning Tamar she is more righteous than I and the word he uses there it's a strong word Imagine a declaration of righteousness for Tamar, the Canaanite. Yes, through her, the line of Judah and Ur would continue. The line through which Messiah would come. Let me tell you, that's the grace of God at work. Rahab, this Canaanite prostitute, is somehow touched and changed within so that from her comes that great statement of faith. To, to Joshua's spies, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. And in fact, Rahab becomes an example of faith for all time by means of her inclusion in Hebrews chapter 11. Let me tell you, church, that's the grace of God at work. Ruth, this Moabite woman who was raised to worship the worst of pagan gods, wrongly married into an Israelite family, is for some reason willing to forsake her customs, her home, her people. The life that she knew is exchanged for following after her mother-in-law, her Jewish mother-in-law, and her God. And from a transformed heart, she says, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. Oh, let me tell you, that can only be the grace of God. And Bathsheba, although having to face the consequences of her sin with David, eventually Bathsheba becomes the mother of Solomon, the son through through whom the royal line would continue. That's the grace of God at work. Listen, at every twist and turn of history, we find God's grace at work to overcome sin. By his grace and power, God touches the hearts of sinners and transforms them into people whom he can use for his good purposes, bringing them into his own family and using them to bring forth the promised Messiah. Through the lives of these four women, we find a great illustration again of Paul's words where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Amazing grace that will come to all through the coming of Messiah. And that brings us to our final point. Through their stories, we find a revelation of God's love, his love for all people, for all people. You know, we know it. Well, John in his gospel, he put it so well. For God so loved the The world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him. When John used that word world, he's speaking about the nations, all people, all nations. And the lives of these four women and their place in the genealogical list reminds us of God's great love for all people. The inclusion of these Gentile women reminds us of God's promise to Abraham that through him and his descendants that all peoples on earth would be blessed. In fact, it seems that Matthew, if you go through his gospel, he goes to great lengths to make this point over and over again. Here at the start, he includes these women with a Gentile connection. He goes on to include in his story, as we'll see in a couple weeks, the magi, these astrologers who come from a foreign land to worship the Messiah. And he ends his gospel with Jesus' great commission to go into all the world. And make disciples. Listen, Matthew makes it clear that all that God did throughout history, throughout the generations, was motivated by his great love for all people. A love that caused God to reach down into our world. A love that caused him to touch the lives of these women. A a love that caused him to protect the Messiah's line. A love that would send to earth his one and only son. The Bible says, while we were yet sinners... God sent his son. I mean that's incredible love, is it not? Or I love the way Titus put it. I mean excuse me, Paul put it to Titus in Titus chapter 3. But when the kindness and love of God our savior appeared. How did it appear? The kindness and love of God appeared through Jesus, the incarnation, his birth. When the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Listen, the Christmas story is given to us by Matthew right from the start. Here in this genealogy of Jesus, in his twisted family tree, speaks to us of God's great love for us and for all people. A love that would reach down to even the worst of sinners, a love that reaches out to Jew and to Gentile alike, a love that will be available to all people that all might be saved. And so here's the thing. Thank you, Kim. You see, Matthew, think about this. Matthew could have skipped over or left out these four women, just left them out from the listing of Jesus' family line. He could have just ignored them and their stories, and no one would have given a second thought. He did not have to say, and, and you know, the father Boaz, and Boaz the father, you know, by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. He could have just said the father of Boaz and the father of Obed and just skipped the names of these women, and no one would have thought about it. But he didn't. He didn't. Why? Because their inclusion spoke volumes to his first audience. Those believers there, most likely in Antioch, who were first reading what Matthew was penning, what he had penned. And they speak volumes to us still even today. The inclusion of these four women speak to us of God's plan in action, a plan to send forth a Messiah to be our savior, a plan that he would not allow to be thwarted, a plan that he worked through the generations. And no matter how how God's people themselves would go astray and who would come and who would go and the sin and and so forth, God was going to make sure Messiah would come. We see his plan in action. We see his grace in action. Grace that reaches down into the lives of even the worst of sinners. Grace that has a power to transform a life and overcome the worst of sin. And we see God's love in action, incredible love for all peoples. John wrote in his his epistle, 1 John 4, 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Matthew's Christmas story, even through the listing of all these names in Jesus' twisted family tree, reminds us that Jesus is truly the Messiah sent by God. It reminds us that through Jesus, God is still at work in our world, that his grace and his love are still at work to transform lives, to bring about newness of life, to rescue and save. His grace and love are still at work to bring about good plans for his people and for our world. And listen, as you look back over your, your family tree and you say, oh yeah, my family tree is pretty twisted. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but if you have a twisted family tree, you know it, don't you? And yet you can know that God has been at work through the generations and that you being here today and you serving Jesus is not an accident, but God's grace and his power and his love have been extended to you. I look back over my family and The good, the bad, and the ugly. Listen, my Greek grandparents, they were part of the Greek Orthodox Church, and I don't have anything bad to say about the Greek Orthodox Church, except they didn't know Jesus, and they had their traditions. And then my mother's family, I mean, they were Orthodox Jews. My grandmother, her house was as kosher as could be. And yet I look back, and I see God's work in both sides of the family to protect and preserve so that the day would come when, when, wow, the Lord would step into our family line. Hearts would be opened. And today, today, this isn't bragging, I'm just as an example, but today there's, there's two preachers right, that have come through that family line. If you look back one or two generations, you never would have thought that possible. Listen, God has been at work He was at work for generations to bring Messiah into our world. He's at work even today to work in your life, in your family. He's been at work. He continues to work. For Messiah has come so that all who call upon his name, they will be saved. No matter how twisted your family tree might be, no matter how twisted your life might be, God sent his son to be your savior if you'll but put your faith in Him. And so as we come to this, the Lord's table, we want to worship God and give Him thanks for His grace and His love that has reached down to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We want to thank Him that He's a God who's still at work. Grace, power, love, His plan unfolding through the generations even today. Will you bow your heads with me? Worship team, would you come? So Father, this morning, we do thank you so much. We thank you so much that where sin abounds, grace abounds so much more, so much more, so much more. And although the threat was there, that the line of Messiah would be, diluted and destroyed. God, you stepped in each and every time with grace and love and power to make sure that one day, one day in the fullness of time, at just the right time, Messiah would be born, Jesus would come. And that those who would call upon his name, that they could and would be saved. So we thank you this morning for your work. We thank you this morning that your work has not stopped, but you continue to work through the generations. You continue to work in our world, in our lives. Some of us, God, we look back over our histories, our family histories even, and we see, see so much um so much chaos and and difficulty. Some of us, our our hearts and our minds, our lives have even yet been impacted by those things. But God, we thank you that you have worked in spite of all those things. Some of us, our lives have been twisted as we've given ourselves over to the things of this world time and again. But God, your grace is able to overcome even the sin of our own lives as we call upon the name of Jesus. Jesus. We can be saved. We can be changed, transformed, given new life. So, Lord, we thank you for that this morning. God, I pray for someone here today who's maybe reaching out to you for the very first time. Just in their heart, they know they need you, Jesus. Lord, that you would step into their life. Give them new hope. Give them newness of life. Forgive them of every sin as they confess their sin to you, as they put their faith in Jesus as Lord, as Christ, as Messiah, as their Savior. We thank you. Amen. If you're here this morning, you've not yet given your life to following God through faith in Jesus, you know you need Jesus in your life. I just encourage you to reach out to him even as we go through this time together. On your connection card, there's a, a little box that you can check that says, I, I want to know more about serving Jesus, something like that. You check that off, someone will be in touch with you to pray with you. I'm going to ask our, our deacons to come at this time to serve us this morning. And... Um, I just want to remind us that here at First Assembly of God, we serve an open communion, which means you do not need to be a formal member of this church, but if you've given your life to God through faith in His Son, Jesus, then we invite you, we welcome you to receive this cup and this bread with us this morning. Usually, I like to have communion in the middle of the service so that our children can be here with us as well. Um, But today, I just felt like place for us to receive these elements was here at the end of this service after the preaching of God's word as our minds, our hearts and minds are on the incredible work of God that's been extended to us through Christ our Savior. Aren't you thankful for his grace this morning? Come on, listen, right? While we were yet sinners, while our lives were yet twisted, right? He sent his son Jesus to be our Savior. And Jesus came giving himself all the way to death on the cross. And Matthew writes in his gospel, in Matthew 26, that now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it broke and gave it to his disciples and said, take eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you, for this is, is my blood of the, the new covenant which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Amen. Amen. Brother Fred, could I ask you to come and just ask God's blessing over this cup and bread for us? Thank you.
1: Lord Jesus, we thank you, Lord. We come to this table, Lord, not just to remember you Lord God but to worship you for what you've done for us by your perfect sacrifice and obedience to the Father you reconciled us to you so that we are worthy just to come to this table Lord Jesus you've always been with us Lord God you are all in all in every way you bring health to us Lord God you bring grace Lord God and you've given us mercy and, and the the forgiveness, Lord God, so that we'll never sin out of us, out of our spirit, but only our flesh, Lord. So we thank you, Lord. We love you, Lord God, and we praise you in Jesus' name.
0: Let's just worship the Lord as we receive the bread and the cup. There, we ask you to to hold that until we, we can participate together.
2: He became sin who knew no sin That we might become His righteousness He humbled Himself
0: you, Jesus, under You'll take your packet there with the bread side up and you can pull back the foil that's there. Take out the piece of bread. The bread broken for us that we might be reminded we might remind ourselves of how Jesus' body was broken for us, amen, his body broken for us, that we might know the wholeness of God, the fullness of God, the peace of God, the shalom of God at work in our lives, in our bodies, our minds, our spirits, even today, the Messiah, many thought he was coming riding on a white horse. Well, he's going to come that way. But first he came to have his body broken for us. And so it's with great thanksgiving that we receive this bread together. Let us eat it together. over and expose the cup there. I just sense in my heart this morning that there are those who've come this morning, you have a need in your life. You need healing. You need need peace. You need comfort. You need strength this morning. You need God to work a miracle in your family. Listen, the enemy wants to twist your family tree again and again and again. Wants to mess up our lives. He wants to destroy our homes. But God's power is still the same. His grace is still the same this morning. His love is everlasting. We're reminded of that through this cup this morning. Before you drink of this cup, can we just take a moment? Just begin to pray. Reach out to the Lord. Say, God, this is what I need you to do in my life, in my family, in my home. I need you to step in, Jesus. I need you to step in by the power of your Holy Spirit. I need you to come and, and just minister grace. God, God, minister grace to my children, my grandchildren, to, to husbands, wives, um, or whoever it might be. Minister healing, oh God. Minister peace this morning. Oh God, work your good plans in our lives. We know that the price was paid for it all. The price was paid for it all. Through the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So it's in faith this morning that we receive this cup and with great thanksgiving. Let us drink it together. hallelujah 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 come on church just lift your hands just thank the lord this morning just thank him today hallelujah oh we bless you god come on on the instruments with our voices here this morning with your heart to the lord hallelujah oh we thank you god we thank you god oh we thank you jesus for your work in our lives we thank you jesus for your still a God who makes crooked places straight that God you are still a God who works in the deserts of our lives you're still a God who works in the wilderness places of our lives hallelujah hallelujah oh we bless you we say today that all of our hope is in you Jesus all of our hope is in you Jesus not in the things of this world not in each other God not in what this world is able to give us or do for us. But our hope is found in you, Jesus. Hallelujah. For you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. Hallelujah. You are the Savior of our souls. We bless you today. We bless you today. Hallelujah. 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 We magnify you, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. All our hopes Sing it together.
2: Oh the
0: Thankful for Jesus this morning. I know I ask that question a lot, right? But come on, we can never be be thankful enough for his work in our lives. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And I just pray this morning that we would leave this place filled with hope. The hope that God is still at work in our world. He's still at work in our lives. His love and his grace is able to reach down to us, to to family that we're praying for, for friends. No matter what's taking place, he's still at work in and through the lives of his people. Amen. And we thank him this morning for the hope that we have in him. And so, Father, Lord, we do thank you for hope that's found through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And I pray, God, that through this season, that hope would just stir in our hearts over and over and over again and even spill through our lives to those around us. So bless your people as we go from this place this morning. I pray your hand upon each one. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. God bless you, church. God bless you.